We've been looking at the parables today. We're going to continue that. And we're making kind of the third bite of the apple on the prodigal son. There's just so much there that I, I got through a couple of messages and I thought, man, this is, there's an opportunity here to look at uh, one more character. And so we're going to do that today. Um, it's a lot like when you're, uh, you're a farmer and you pick tomatoes and you pick tomatoes and then a few days later there are more ripe tomatoes and a few days later there are more ripe tomatoes. And so that's what we're doing. We're going to pick uh, at the tomato plant one more time because this story is so rich that we want to make certain uh, that we don't miss anything. And so we're kind of going over it a third time. Uh, we certainly have a lot to be thankful for today as Americans. Um, I was thinking about just this morning, uh, uh, 20 years ago today, I had a heart attack. And uh, uh, so I'm very thankful that God has uh, prolonged my life and those kinds of things. And so um, this is a day to focus on the Father. So the story goes, there was a man who had two sons. And the subject of that sentence is the Father. Uh, the sons sort of describe the father, but really we focused on the sons, which are the characters really in the story. The main person in this story is the father. And I was talking to my friend Chris uh, this week, and he said, I've never heard a sermon on the father. And so we're going to talk about the father today because I think, now we've, we've talked about him in the other two sermons, and I'm going to review a little bit of that because some of the points are so salient and important that we don't want to miss them, and it's probably good to be reminded. But we're going to really, really focus on the Father today. Now, you recall why Jesus tells these particular parables, and he told three in a row. We're going to talk about that in just a second. But tax collectors and sinners were gathered around him, which means Jesus was a person who was comfortable being with people not like himself. Because he was neither a tax collector nor a sinner, and yet they were comfortable with him, and obviously he was comfortable with them, and so he made the efforts to be with people not like himself, which is great. And uh, he made the Pharisees and the scribes uncomfortable. We've talked about that a little bit. And so they began to mutter, and when you're muttering about somebody, when you're talking bad about them, uh, they didn't have, <laughs> have Twitter or Facebook or uh, 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 any place else to, to, to talk smack, and so they just sort of muttered amongst themselves. And the muttering was, this man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. This man welcomes sinners and he eats with them. They have a notion, the Pharisees and the scribes, who are their teachers of the law, they have a notion of what God is like. And if someone were godly in their mind, that he would never hang out with tax collectors and sinners. And so Jesus tells these stories to say, <laughs> um, yeah, I do hang out with these folks. Here's why. Because the Father would want me to. And he begins to tell this series of stories. And so today we're talking about, I call it the prodigal father, mostly because the word prodigal means extravagant, lavish, unrestrained, and some would consider a wasteful love like over the top loving somebody and we talk about the prodigal son because he was wasteful in a negative way well here we talk about the prodigal father because he was extravagant in his love for both sons which is really interesting to me he's extravagant in his love for both sons 
And so we've kind of seen that, but today we're going to talk a little bit more about it. From the very uh, opening curtain, uh, you, the focus is on the Father by, by what He does, by what He says, and even by what He doesn't say. You sort of see the Father's um, attitude. And if you want to know about the Father, then Jesus is the person to ask. And so these folks, they're, they're sort of uh, they're muttering about Him. Hey, you know, you probably shouldn't be hanging out with those folks. And Jesus says, "This you've got the wrong impression of God. Let me tell you what God is like. And he tells these three stories back to back to back. A lot of times when Jesus would tell a parable, he would tell the parable and then he would explain it. Here, that's not the case. He tells three in rapid fire succession. I'm not a huge NBA fan, but this last, uh, the playoffs, I watched one uh, series with the Mavericks, the Dallas Mavericks. They have a player on their team named Luka Doncic, and he's from Genovia or someplace, and uh, uh, he is really, really good. And he's like 6'9", and he plays point guard, and he's, he's slow, and uh, it's amazing that he does what he does, and so I like watching him. And so when I'm watching the NBA game and I don't watch the whole game, I just sort of focus on Luca. What's Luca doing? Like, where's he going? What's he doing? Where's he cutting? What's he passing? Uh, who's he passing to? What does he see that other people don't see? Because when you focus on the main character, and anybody that goes to a Mavericks game, they're going to see that guy because he's the guy. When you focus on the main character, then you see everything that he does, which is what we do in the story of the father. Now, to get the context, you have to understand he tells these three stories. Remember who he's talking to. These are religious elites who think they know better than he what God is like. These are religious elites who think they get to set the rules for what's shameful and what's honorable. They get to set the rules. And so they're sort of self-appointed uh, arbiters of <laughs> who God is like. And so Jesus begins to tell these, he tells these three stories in rapid-fire succession. And I've often wondered, why did he need three stories to explain God? Well, maybe God is so different than us that it took three stories to explain it. But think about this. In the story of the lost sheep, Jesus says there was a shepherd, and he says to these religious, elites people, religious elite people, Think about what it would be like if you were a shepherd and you lost a sheep. And every one of those guys who are religious elites would go, well, we're, we would never be a shepherd. Because that is a second-class, third-class occupation. Those people are dirty. They're, they're thieves. They, they couldn't even give testimony in court. They're lesser than us. And so when Jesus says, um, think about being a shepherd, they're like, no, because we would never be a shepherd. And I was trying to think, is there a, a modern-day analogy to that in America? May, maybe if Jesus had said um, there was a prostitute who did something, and all of us would go, well, we're not, we'd never be a prostitute. That's kind of the reaction that they would have had. Well, we would never be a shepherd, so we can't even put ourselves in this particular situation because we would never do that. And then Jesus <laughs> makes it worse because, again, this is an honor, shame culture. He says, the shepherd lost a sheep. You would never say that. You would say, a sheep wandered off, because to lose a sheep if you were a shepherd is dishonorable. It's shameful. And so Jesus says, hey, this guy, he has 100 sheep. He loses one. 
and he, he leaves the 99. This is also extravagance. Why would you not pin them up or take them back to the corral or something? He, he urgently, extravagantly leaves the 99 and searches for the one. And I always find it really super interesting that Jesus' first announcement of his birth was to shepherds who the religious elite considered less than. And so Jesus starts with this story, and then he tells the, 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 the next story. By the way, this whole idea of you would never say, I lost a sheep, <laughs> because it would bring you shame. So you'd blame it on, you'd blame it on the sheep, right? So you say, the sheep wandered off. My dad one time, back in the day, uh, daddy was a truck driver and he always had a pickup truck. And so he would, I would have a car occasionally that would break down and he would come tow me. I don't, think, I, don't, I don't see anybody towing anybody anymore, but back in the day, it's what you did. And so, Daddy would tow me. And so, uh, one night, it was super cold, and I, my car, uh, it turned out my timing belt broke. Uh, and so, I'm, I'm in Lexington, which is 35 miles from where I live. My dad shows up to pick me up, and uh, he ties a, um, a rope, something. He ties something uh, to my car, and he's going to pull me home. And I, I've got to drive, you know, that kind of thing. So he gets me all tied up, and I get in the car, and I'm freezing, because if your car's not running, you're not getting heat. That's kind of how it works. And I'm in there freezing, and about the time, Daddy, you know, you have to let out easy and, and get the rope, you know, taut. You can't just jerk somebody. So he got it taut, and about that time, I realized that the key was in my pocket, which means my steering wheel was locked, because you, you can't move your steering wheel if the key's not in the ignition on. And so he takes off. And it took about six feet before the rope broke, and I did a 360 in the middle of the road in my car. And Dad, I, saw, I remember, I'll, just, I'll never forget this. He drove up, he turned around, he came back, uh, he rolled down his window, and I, I got out of the car, and he said, what happened? And I said, the darn key wasn't in the ignition, like it's the key's fault, right? So that's sort of the idea about the sheep. Uh, uh, in an honor culture, you would never say, oh, um, uh, the, the, I, I lost a sheep. You'd say the sheep wandered off. But, but Jesus in this story says, the shepherd lost the sheep. It's always about shame and honor in this. And then the second story is about, um, uh, he goes and finds the sheep and he rejoices. It's always, there's a, kind of there's this pattern. He goes, he finds the sheep, he brings it back, he calls everybody together, they have a party. That's how it works. The second story about the lost coin also has a, a hero in the story, or a heroine in this case, who the religious elite looked down upon, a, a woman. Um, they considered them second-class, third-class citizens, certainly not somebody to emulate, and yet Jesus makes her the star of the story. She's got these ten coins, and there's speculation that the coins are a dowry. That would be what would, would be paid out when she uh, was engaged to be married. And she loses one. Now, in that culture, a lot of times you would make jewelry. Um, it's a very agrarian culture where Jesus was at this time. And so most transactions happened via barter. But occasionally you'd have a coin, and occasionally you'd use a coin, and they would make, uh, women would make jewelry out of their coins so they would have them with them all the time. And so you can imagine if you have a, 
a, a necklace or earrings and, and you lose part of the earring, then now you, uh, you're frantic. Your ensemble is messed up and you have to do something about it. And so uh, thus she is frantic and she finds the coin after a diligent search and she rejoices and calls others to rejoice as well. A hundred sheep, ten coins. The next story is two sons. And Jesus, again, talks about these two sons. There's sort of this progression. He's, he is uh, uh, lowering the proportions. Uh, it was one out of a hundred, and then it was one out of ten, and now it's one out of two. And he is saying each one of these is important. And so he tells this story of the son, and he goes off, and then the son comes back, and the father runs, and you'll recall that running in that society was incredibly shameful. We, we have a hard time with this. I, I can't even, I can't bring it into American terms because we just don't think like this. But for a Middle Eastern man like that to expose even his feet, they had robes that covered their feet, much less to hike it up enough to run, was, was just uber shameful. And yet, this is what the father does. And he uh, restores the son, and they have a party because that is the pattern of all three stories. The stories go like this. Uh, something is lost that's very valuable to the owner. Every time, every story, same plot. Uh, when the lost thing is found, they celebrate. And the third thing about every one of these stories is the hero is someone the religious elites do not admire. And Jesus is making this point. Hey, you all think you know who God is, but you really don't. And I'm going to tell this story, these stories, so you can see the, the breadth and the width of who God is in maybe a different way. Have you ever met anybody who you, you can tell them the truth or you can try to persuade them, but it doesn't work? Well, well, this is what Jesus is up against because the, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're, they're in charge. They have all the power in that community. And so to, to persuade them to change their minds is incredibly difficult. In fact, there were, uh, there were the Pharisees, and the only one that we know of who ever changed his mind was a guy named Nicodemus. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea, um, I, we, I don't know that we know he was a Pharisee. He, he sort of came along and, and believed in Jesus. But there were lots of Pharisees. To have lots of Pharisees and only one guy that we know of change his mind, it's because it was so ingrained who they thought God was. Now, uh, a couple of these first ones are review, but we're going to see uh, about our Father. The first thing that we noticed about our Father is He gives us free will. Super important to understand this. In the text, the boy asks for his share of the estate, and the father gives it to him. He doesn't um, affirm his decision. In fact, I would think he didn't like the decision. Uh, not only does he give him his stuff, but not long after that, the young son goes off and he squanders his wealth, and the father allowed him to do it. And later we find out that he squandered his wealth with prostitutes. And rebellion often plays out in sexual sin. It often does. We see it today all the time. That rebellion often plays out in sexual sin. And we think, oh, it's the worst it's ever been. It's all new. It's really not all new. Let me show you this picture. 
I would love to tell you what that guy's first name is, but I'm not sure I can pronounce it. But I'll give it a go. Elagabalus Marcus Aurelius Antonius. He was one of the um, emperors of Rome. In fact, it was 20, uh, 218 uh, after Jesus was around 218 A.D. He became emperor at age 14. Uh, brother was whack. He was <laughs> crazy. And so um, he, was only, he only reigned for, for four years, and then he was deposed. In the four years between his 14th and 18th birthday, uh, he married five women, at least five, and divorced them. He had many male lovers and, at and married at least one of them, and from uh, historical records, offered vast sums of money to any physician who could change him from a male to a female. We think all that's new. It's not all new. 200, I mean, it was 218 A.D. this was happening. The church was being established during times like this. The Romans were in charge. They were the ones that got to set the rules. And yet Christianity flourished because they were different than everybody else. Sexual sin is often how rebellion plays out. God has given us a standard. Uh, sex within the confines of biblical marriage, one man, one woman for life, this is the standard. Anything outside of that is rebellion. Is it something to be proud of? No. Is it forgivable? Absolutely. But this is how it works. And God gives us free will to make really bad decisions. And sometimes we take him up on that. The second thing about our father is we don't earn our way back home. This is super important. We've talked about it a couple times, but I, I, it was just so important I don't wanted to mention it again. So the boy is in dire straits. He doesn't know what to do with himself. He's off in a distant country, and he's starving to death. And he has this soliloquy. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. By the way, when he says I've sinned against heaven, what he's basically saying is I've, my sins are stacked as high as the heavens. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me your hired servant. So he got up and he went to his father. This was his plan. And the father greets the son and he doesn't even let him get through with his speech because the son wants to be a hired servant. And a son is a son. And the father treats him like a son because a son is a son. And I didn't know this, but scholars have discovered there was a similar story in rabbinic tradition uh, during this time. When Jesus starts this story, everybody thinks they know how it's going to go. The boy goes away, bad things happen, he comes home, the father with crossed arms says something to the effect of, you've made your bed, now you're going to lay in it, and he sends him down the road. This is what they thought Jesus' story was going to be. And so it was startling to them when Jesus restores the son. Not only does he restore him, the restoration doesn't even require any work. It's instant. It's complete. And the father says to the servant, quick, like do it immediately. Uh, this son who was dead is now alive, and so we're going to celebrate. All the stories are the same. We're going to celebrate because what is lost, what was lost, has been found. And the thing that's most striking about this to me is he says, bring the robe, the best robe, which would have been his robe, and put it on him. Now, as a bit of a germaphobe, 
this is kind of a weird part of this story. Because I would have said, quick, draw him a bath because he stinketh. Uh, I'm sure that's what I would have said. Uh, He smells like swine. Um, He is sweaty and stinky, and before we put the robe on him, why don't we clean him up a bit? But that's not what the Father says. Quick, put the robe on him now. And the picture is, we don't have to earn our way home. The Father loves us in the midst of our sin. He loves us in our stinky, swine-smelly, starving selves. And maybe the most beautiful picture of, of this whole thing is the Father puts the robe on the Son before the Son ever uh, even thinks about cleaning up. Let me give you one more. There's a couple more. I'll give you this one. He's approachable. The Father is approachable. To the scribes and the Pharisees, the Father was not approachable. Think about it. Ten Commandments. Did everybody go get the Ten Commandments on Mount Sinai? Or was it one dude named Moses? Only one guy, right? The only guy, God was only approachable to Moses. And what about having your sins forgiven? Do you do that yourself? Or did you offer a sacrifice once a year at Passover for the sins of all the nation? And who got to do that? Anybody? No, it was the high priest. It was a priest. Only, only they could go in once a year on a high holy day. And so this idea that Jesus is presenting about God, that he now is approachable, is incredibly different. But think about it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and, and he populates the, uh, the planet with good things, uh, seed-bearing fruit and animals and all those kinds of things. And then there's Adam, and Adam needs a helper, and so he creates Eve, and there they are, Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And what does God want most from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden but Relationship. He, he comes by, he, he wants to visit with them. You know, he wants to hang out with them. And so sin caused a rift in relationship. And it's the same thing with this, with this boy. He, 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 not only, he not only rebelled, but he broke relationship. And the thing the father wanted most was, the boy's story is humanity's story. What the father wants is restoration of relationship. And anybody and everybody is welcome to restore relationship. You don't even have to get your act together. Some people would rather John 3.16 say, for God so loved the world that he sent Jesus to tell everybody to shape up. And if they shape up, they can come to the Father. But this is not the story Jesus tells. And again, if you want to know about God the Father, then you ask Jesus. Because he knows it better than anybody. And he's saying to these scribes and Pharisees, I'm telling you, I'm painting you this picture of who God is. He is approachable. There's this great verse in Hebrews that that says, Jesus sits at the right hand of God making intercession for us when we pray. 
So when you pray, I don't know how you do it, but when I pray, I think about that. There's God on his throne, and he's a little intimidating. But then there's our brother, Jesus, at his right hand, and he is making intercession. And so I pray, and I, I believe that Jesus makes intercession. I mean, this boy made a request, and it was a horrible request. We, we can come to Jesus with, with anything. Uh, he doesn't always grant it, but we can come with it with anything. I've met some very immature people who pray about very immature things, and I've been one of those people before. We don't always get what we pray for, but he, he is approachable every single time. I've had four kids in my life who are mine, and sometimes they come to me with really great requests, and sometimes they don't. But here's what I want them to know. If they ever want to ask for something, they can. God wants us to know. If we ever want to ask for something, we can. Which brings us to the next point, and that is, he is the provider. Um, the boy gets his stuff the very last sentence says, but no one gave him anything. The father, everything this kid had was because of the father. No one wanted to give him anything. And this whole thing about being sent out to feed the pigs, it says he was hired. <laughs> In the Middle Eastern culture, you didn't want to embarrass a dude because that was sort of uncool. Even if it was a Jew, you didn't want to embarrass him. So when a guy came and said, hey, I'd like a job, if you really didn't want to give him a job, you would offer him a job you knew he wouldn't take. It, it was sort of strategery, you know? It's like, okay, I'm going to offer him something I know he won't do. And so this, this non-Jew says to this boy, okay, why don't you go feed the pigs? Because he knows, number one, pigs are unclean to Jews. And number two, uh, that job was seven days a week. You couldn't, you couldn't observe the Sabbath. And yet the kid does it because he is incredibly, completely, <laughs> without options. He's about to starve to death. If we're lost about our Father, if we're lost, He wants us found. The, the idea that the Father was looking, was waiting. So He didn't know what day the kid was going to come home in this story. How would He know? But... So this must have been an everyday thing, and this must have been uh, an all-day thing. It must have happened all the time. And the diligence and patience of the Father to wait for those of us who have come home to repentance. See, the Father let him go because you cannot make somebody love you. But you can nobody know that somebody does love you. He couldn't make the boy love him, but he could sure show him that he kept loving him, even when he was away. You know, so many of us, we think God is mad at us. I, I remember when the squirrels were getting in my bird feeder, and um, I'd sit on the back porch with my BB gun. Uh, it's a God thing, man. I mean, I love that. And uh, I, I would sit there, and I'd have my BB gun ready, and boy, that squirrel would go up the pole, and I, I would... I would uh, I'd put the fear of God in him. It was great. And some of us think about God like he is sitting in his chair somewhere with a BB gun ready to pop us if we you know, make a mistake. God is not like that at all. Look, look at this verse. The Lord is patient with you. The magnificence 
of God's patience. We, we've, we've all, each one of us, have tried his patience. What, what's, what's the expression that you use when your kid is just killing you? You, you say, you know, you're driving on my last nerve. Uh, I am fairly certain we've driven on God's last nerve a few times. He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish. If you are lost, if someone that you love is lost, he wants more than anything else for that person to be found. And he said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be your son. That's what the boy said. And the father runs. And let me tell you a funny little story about the father running. You, you know there are ancient traditions around all of these rules that they had. And so there was a rule. By the way, the robe is called, let me find the, the Hebrew word. The Hebrew word is mechabeduth. Let's not even say it again. Uh, uh, the Hebrew word for robe literally means honor. So when the Middle Eastern man walked around with his big robe, it was honorable. Now there was this rule, get this, if a bird crawls under your robe on a Sabbath, you had to leave it there. That's a bad rule. Uh, I don't care who you are, that's a really, really bad rule. Depends on the size of the bird, but that's really a bad rule. And so the idea was you would wait until sundown and then you would lift your robes because then you could expose your legs and nobody would see it and let the bird out. This is how strenuously they, they, they cared about the father running. In the Arabic, you know the, the Bible wasn't written in English. You all know that, right? It was written in Hebrew or it was written in Greek. And here, this story Jesus would have told would have been in Greek. And it was translated into English and other languages. And in the Arabic translations, especially early on, it changed a little bit now, they, they were so offended that the father would run that they, wouldn't even, they didn't even translate it that way. For years and years and years, the oldest translations in the Arabic say that the father hastened or he hurried, but they do not say he ran because it was such a shameful act. And the Father in this story does exactly what Jesus did for us. Lastly, restoration brings him great joy. He said we had to celebrate. He could not see any other way but celebration. We had to celebrate. I think what's really interesting to me is they killed a fatted calf. It's not like that was... You didn't have a freezer where you had stuff. He was preparing for this. Each one of us who've come home to Christ, he's been preparing for that. Or he prepared for that. Remember when Jesus last night with his disciples said, I go to prepare a place for you? 2,000 years ago he said that. This is an act that was prepared for. And he prepared for this. It's interesting to me, in the first story, it's a sheep wanders off in ignorance. In the second story, uh, the person loses something maybe by neglect or carelessness. In the third story, something is lost, one by rebellion. It's actually rebellion twice. It's just different kinds of rebellion. One is sort of in-your-face rebellion, and the other is pride, which is a, a form of rebellion. And in each time, there is this beautiful message. See, the Father did what 
what Jesus, the, the Father in the story did what Jesus did. For God made Christ, who had never sinned, to be the offering for our sin. He became sin for us. And the Father took on the humiliation and the shame to restore the Son. And Jesus took, took our humiliation and shame so that we could be restored to the Father. There is an immutable truth to the world. You reap what you sow. It always works that way. If I sow corn, I get corn stalks. If I sow watermelon, I get watermelon vines. If I sow kudzu, I have an endless supply. It never goes away. So it makes sense. We, we look at the world and we go, okay, well, it always works that way. If I sow this, I get this. Always. So it makes sense that the scribes and the Pharisees, they thought, well, okay, if what I sow, reap is what I sow, then it makes sense that I have to earn God's favor because that's the way everything else works. If I'm good, I will win God's favor. That makes sense in a world where sowing and reaping are so common. This is what makes grace a miracle. It is a miracle because it is completely not that. Look at what it says here. I want to go to this verse. But the people are counted as righteous not because of their work, but because of their faith and the God who forgives sinners. Every place else, it's something else. I reap what I sow, but when I come to the Father, I can bring Him nothing but my heart. If there was a headline, it would read like this, Our Father extravagantly loves us. That is the message of these three stories, especially the prodigal son. Our Father deeply loves us. Which carries us right into communion. If you didn't get one of these, hopefully you did, but if you didn't, now would be the time to go get one. Okay? Go get one. Let's look at everybody who didn't get one because that would be the right thing to do. It's a shame, uh, honor culture, and uh, you know, you didn't know. That's yeah, all good. Oh, I'm supposed to be on this slide. Here we go. Think about this story in relationship to Jesus. The Father takes the shame that should be ours, that should be his son's, it should be ours. Jesus took the shame that should be ours. The Bible says that the Father laid on him our sins. So on the cross, Jesus became a sacrifice so we don't have to. He took the shame, he took the punishment so we don't have to. I think the story of the prodigal son is so powerful to us because we feel that. Sometimes, maybe often, we don't feel worthy. That's what the boy said. I'm no longer worthy. I know myself. I know what I do. I know what I say. I know what I think. There are times I don't feel worthy. Probably are the same way. 
And when I don't feel worthy, I remember what the, what the son says, or what the dad said. Quick. Bring the best robe. The point isn't that we're worthy. It's that the Father wants the relationship so much that He's willing to forgive our sins. Jesus, on the night He was betrayed, took bread and He broke it. And He gave it to His associates, His disciples. And He said, This is My body, which is broken for you. As often as you do this, like we're doing it today, 2,000 years later, as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. Remember the sacrifice Christ made. Let's do it now. In the same way it says Jesus took the cup. And he would have, as a good Jewish rabbi, would have thanked God for the fruit of the vine. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. And now I'm picturing in my mind the father running, taking the shame that was so deserving for the, for the son. And I'm thinking of Jesus on a cross, taking my shame, taking your shame. And he said, this is the new covenant in my blood. He's making an agreement with us. We can have relationship because of Jesus' sacrifice. Just like the prodigal son. He said, this is the new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. Let's do that now. One last thing. The robe. I can't get my mind off the robe. The father said, hey, bring the best robe and put it on my son. Now, we've already established that best robe would have been the father's robe, but the father didn't always wear it. In fact, the time this, this should have been worn, the first time this robe should have been worn by somebody other than the father would have been the oldest son's wedding day. And the father would have brought the robe out and he would have put it on his uh, eldest son who would have always been married first. That's just how it worked. And they would have celebrated. And so this father in our story, again, does something shameful. He kind of gets it out of sync and he gives it to the youngest son and he's not even getting married. And, and you think about the robe and it's just sort of importance. The robe in that culture was really important. It was the symbol of honor. And then I read in Revelation this. Jesus was wearing a long robe. This is the glorified, this is the heaven Jesus. With a gold sash around his chest, his head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. And when I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I'm the living one. I died, but look, I'm alive forever and ever. I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Written by John, his very best friend. And what does Jesus do? Just like the father in this story. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. Your family, 
It's beautiful. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for this message. We're thankful for you, for Jesus, for the picture Jesus paints of you, and for our understanding, maybe better than it's ever been today, of who you are. Thank you for being gracious. Thank you for your mercy. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.